Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 36. Psalm 36. If you don't have your Bibles, the uh, words to Psalm 36 are provided uh, in your bulletin. So, it's good to have God's Word open for, before you, however, whatever means, whatever way in which you get there. Psalm 36. Try to get all my notes and things prepared here without losing anything. All right, let's pray and uh, we will begin. God, as we open your word now, we ask for, we plead for your mercy. We ask for your goodness through your word to guide us, to minister to us, to, to comfort us, to, to address us. To lead us, God. We pray that you would write the truths of your word upon our heart. Not just for today, but for tomorrow as well. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if any of you have ever been in the situation I'm about to describe. That I have been in on a number of occasions. Uh, I am worn out physically, mentally, have bags under my eyes, sleep deprived, pulling into a Starbucks at about 6 a.m. And uh, the the instance I'm particularly remembering was when I was in college and it was finals week. And uh, believe it or not, I was a bit of a procrastinator. And um, I pull into this Starbucks and I'm not a coffee drinker at all. Uh, I, I have a drink at Starbucks I like if I need to get it, but not, not a big coffee guy. And so I literally pull up to the drive through window, and I roll down the window, and the girl taking orders uh, asks what I would like, and I say, I have no idea. Give me your strongest thing. Maybe you haven't been in that boat. A lot of you are better coffee drinkers than I am. And by better, I just mean you know what it, to order and what to get and all of that. But you probably have been in that boat where you have been so worn out that you just felt like you were carrying an extra 35 pounds around you as you went around. And maybe you've also been in the boat that you have been like I did after those moments and after a few other all-nighters that I've pulled in my life where I'm dragging around like a a zombie like and, and all day and I'm thinking to myself, Stephen, never again do this to yourself. Maybe you've been like that. Well, my hope in Psalm 36 is to address our procrastinating hearts. Here's what I mean. This psalm does not help us to better accomplish our to-do list for tomorrow. But what this psalm does do is it helps us to prepare for tomorrow because the subject matter that we will see, I believe, is something that we are far better prepared for ahead of time than in the moment when it arrives. You see, what we're going to see in Psalm 36 is the manner by which the psalmist David is able to trust in the steadfast love of God even as wicked people surround him. And he is able to call upon that steadfast love of God and rely upon it amidst the dangers 
that surround him. This is something you prepare yourself for ahead of time. It is not something that we can prepare ourselves for the moment of. Rather, it is the work that we put in, in the gym of the Holy Spirit and of God's Word, building these muscles of trust in the Lord, not knowing when it will come that they are needed. So this morning, my hope is to make the case from God's Word that when scorn arises against us as Christians, the steadfast love of God will be our precious hope. Let me say that again. When scorn arises against us as Christians, the steadfast love of God will be our precious hope. Listen as I read from Psalm 36. Follow, Follow along as I read. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, in your light do we see light. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and unable to arise. This morning we're going to see Why we need the steadfast love of God, the preciousness of the steadfast love of God, and then the seriousness of the steadfast love of God. Why we need it, the preciousness of it, and the seriousness of it. First of all, why we need the steadfast love of God. In verses 1 through 4, as I read these, it is possible that you maybe ask some of the same questions that I ask as I initially read through this psalm. And that is, who are the wicked? Or maybe you think to yourself, David or or the psalmist seems to oftentimes describe individuals as either wicked or righteousness. There doesn't seem to be much middle ground. And the the point that David is getting at here is David was um, facing opposition, but not just opposition like good-hearted democratic debate opposition, but opposition more along the lines of those who wanted to destroy him, wanted wanted to wreak havoc upon him as a servant of God. And so this is something that as we consider these, the wicked in verses 1 through 4, that you and I might have a hard time reconciling. Because we aren't in the boat of Christians and brothers and sisters around the globe like I prayed for in our pastoral prayer, or brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, or Christians in other places around the world, where being a Christian, you face opposition that is literally hands of wickedness seeking your harm and seeking your destruction. We don't face that. 
we are able to gather together to worship outside, people driving by, people walking by, seeing what we are doing, and raising no alarm, facing no threat. And so the danger that we can face is that sometimes we don't feel as if we can quite align ourselves or quite understand what David is getting at. But I think there are ways that we can understand this because none of us would, none of us particularly likes being disliked, being mocked, being ridiculed, being questioned. And we know that the message of Christianity, the hope that we have in Christ, is one in which is increasingly out of step with our world. And so we don't face threats of physical violence. We don't face doomsday threats. But we face a world in which we are more and more out of step with them. And so the idea that we have to face or we have to consider is, how will I prepare myself for when that time comes that I am ridiculed for the faith? That I am made fun of for believing in this Christ? And so, how do I prepare myself? Why do I need the steadfast love of God? Well, listen to how David describes it in verse 4. In fact, just look at this. I'm not going to read it all again. But David describes the heart of the one who seeks to oppose the people of God. And he describes it in almost like a stair-step approach. That word transgression in verse 1 could be transgression or rebellion is a word similar to it. And so it's transgression or rebellion against God. And so he says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So first observation here, as he speaks of the one who is transgressing against God, who is rebelling against God, and then subsequently also transgressing against and seeking the harm of God's people, David describes their condition as one who has no fear of God before his eyes. This is a difference between Christians and our non-believing world. Where prayerfully, hopefully, we have, as informed by God's word, a healthy, holy fear of God. Not a fear of God in which we feel as if we are going to be crushed if we step out of line, but a fear of God in which we recognize that He is infinitely holy, infinitely gloriously reigning over us. And we are under Him. And He is the one who dictates our steps, who brings our days to pass. But the one who does not know God has no fear of God before His eyes. In fact, He flatters Himself. In verse 2 it says he's, he believes his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. So then transgressing down, it goes from his heart to his mind and flattering himself. Next, the words of his mouth are troubled in deceit. Where he is no longer acting wisely or doing good. And then lastly, as he lays down on his bed, he plots trouble. And he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. You know, a warning that we hear in this, a warning that we hear in this is a warning to all of us. Maybe we don't consider ourselves to be wicked, but we would consider ourselves to be human. And the warning here, at the very least, for all of us to see is a warning against what can be our human condition. But also, I think it's a warning here for those perhaps who are gathered with us who you are not a Christian or you're seeking to learn about Christianity Maybe you don't consider yourself to be wicked. You don't commit violence against others. You don't plot trouble uh, against others. And and you you don't seek to, to do harm against those who oppose you. 
But maybe you're on the first stair of this and you don't even realize it just with there's no fear of God before you. You consider God and yourself to be largely fine. I think the warning here is quite subtle, yet quite serious. It's quite subtle and quite serious in this way. We take these examples here. And the warning is that the wicked acts in the dark. And that is what our sin does, brothers and sisters. It tries to stay in the dark. And so when we commit sexual sin, it happens behind the dark curtains of deception and vagueness that smooths over the seriousness of the the offense. Abuse happens behind closed doors where threats are made quietly and discreetly. When we gossip about others, we do so in hushed tones, making sure others that don't need to hear cannot hear it. When we stew in envy over our neighbor's or our friend's life that we wish we had or feel they don't deserve, while doing so with a smile and giving pleasant impressions, we are giving the impression that we worship God or we profess to worship God while our hearts are actually far from Him. And the danger, for some reason, this verse 1, there's no fear of God before His eyes. This just torments me. There are many who walk around us, who are in lines with us at the grocery store, who wait on their prescriptions at the pharmacy, who sit in traffic beside us, who sit in beach chairs, a couple of chairs over at the beach. Many who, who would say they have a relationship with God or even with His church, but they, the one that they have a relationship with is not the God of the Bible. But it is the God of their own imagination. Because the God of their imagination does not challenge them. The God of their imagination affirms and confirms everything that they think and that they view in life. As Tim Keller, the pastor out of New York, has said, if your God never disagrees with you, then it is probably not the God of the Bible that you are worshiping. It is a God of your own creating. This is what the wicked do. And maybe it's not the wicked who are beheading people on another side of the world. But maybe it's the wickedness deep down in our own hearts. Where we think angrily and vindictively and even violently against those around us. And you know what's truly alarming? Because we think, oh, that can't be me. We lie to ourselves oftentimes about the spiritual state of our souls. Let me share with you something I read that was quite funny this week. A poll was released that revealed that Americans are far more confident, dare I say arrogant, than our British counterparts. At least when it comes to one thing, and that was this poll asked Americans and Brits how they could do in a fight with various different animals. So listen to this. For example, 72% of Americans think of, and when I say a fight, like you don't get weapons, it's just fists and whatever these animals have, okay? So 72% of Americans believe they could beat a rat in a fight. 67% of Brits think they could beat a rat in a fight. I think I could do that. I think, I th- I think 33% of Brits actually have pretty low self-esteem. I mean, you could beat a rat, right? If you had to, you might run from it, but if you had to. But it gets worse. 
49% of Americans think they can beat a medium-sized dog in a fight, but only 38% of Brits could. I'm not going to elaborate on that because we wouldn't fight Fido, right? Okay. But listen to this. This is where it gets alarming. 15% of Americans think they could beat a King Cobra in a fight, while only 7% of Brits believe they could. The numbers go to 9% and 3% when it comes to fighting a crocodile, and 6% of Americans and 2% of Brits believe they could best a grizzly bear if they had to. This is comical. It is absurd. Who are the 15% who think they could beat a king cobra? Who are the 9% who think they could take a crocodile? And the 6% that believe they could beat a grizzly bear? But listen to this. For as much as we laugh about that, or for as absurd as we think that is, it would be far more foolish, according to verses 1 through 4, than to believe that one day you could enter into the presence of an absolutely holy God while having given little to no thought of who He is and having dismissed what he says about himself and about us in his word. If you don't think you can beat a king cobra or a grizzly bear, but you've given little to no thought of God and his holiness and yourself and your own sinfulness, you're far more foolish than those who responded like this. So, we don't have the wicked around us seeking our harm. But, in some ways, we have the remnants of wickedness that flares up in our own hearts. But getting back to this, putting ourselves in the shoes of David, knowing that violence will probably not be perpetuated against us for the faith, but knowing that we might get the mocking, the raised eyebrow, even the condemnation for our Christian views from those whose opinions we value. What do we hold on to then? Well, verses 1-4 through four showed us our need for God's steadfast love in light of the wicked who seek to harm. But secondly, verses 5-9 through nine show us the preciousness of God's steadfast love. Shows us the preciousness of God's steadfast love. Listen to verses 5 and 6. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save. Oh God, if I'm honest, I read this and I say, okay, your steadfast love, O oh Lord, extends to the heaven. Your faithfulness to the clouds, your righteousness is like mountains. Your judgments are like to the deepest reaches of the sea. And I say, that sounds really poetic and beautiful, but what does it mean? Or what does it mean for me, maybe? Or, or what is the value or the worth of it towards me? I'm not saying this is the case for us if we find ourselves asking that question, but one condition sometimes that the person in one through, verses 1-4 through four has, or, the, or just even in our own hearts and the busyness of our lives that we can muster, is that we can kind of start to compartmentalize God. We can compartmentalize God to where we have our spiritual life, we have our family life, we have our, our leisure life, we have our professional life, we have all these different things, and yet what we see actually is the God of the Bible is not a God that we take out of a box and we turn on whenever it's time to turn it on on Sunday morning and then we put it back in and walk away and go do the next thing. But actually the God of the Bible is revealed in verses 5-6 through six and throughout the totality of the Bible is a God who reigns over all things. Therefore, He doesn't get compartmentalized in our life, but He rules over it all and He shapes and informs how we view and understand and approach our lives. And so in verses 5 and 6 where He says, listen to the, 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 the connections to all of creation. The steadfast love of the Lord extends to the heavens beyond our reach. The faithfulness of God to the clouds, 
His righteousness is like the highest mountains that we behold. And His judgments, or His, his word, his, his justice, His edicts, his, his verdicts, they stretch all the way to the deepest reaches of the earth, or of, of the sea. So how do we think about this? It sounds impressive, but how do we dwell upon it? How do we get the impressiveness of the sound of it to go through our ears and into our hearts? Well, I think we can do this by doing the following four things. Look down, look around, look back, and look forward. Here's what I mean. We look down. We read our Bibles. We don't just cursory glance over them, but we we meditate upon them. We consider them. We pray that God would, would cause them to supernaturally begin to begin to be inhaled by us and and to to start to affect our hearts and our lives. We make a regular practice of this. We read good theology books. We pray that this knowledge that we are taking in would not um, not just fill up our minds, but that they would provide actually the beat to our hearts by which we sing of the glory of God. So we look down in our study filling our minds with the things of God as opposed to the things that otherwise we want to continue to fill ourselves with. We look around. We actively pray for opportunities to share the hope of Christ with non-Christians God has brought into our lives. And beyond this, we pursue opportunities to broaden our horizons of the work God is doing in His world and causing the Gospel to spread to the ends of the earth. We don't just pray for others in other parts of the of our region or in other parts of the world, brothers and sisters all over the place. We don't just do this to do it. We do this because it is the same God who reigns over us, who reigns over them. And we view ourselves as uniquely connected with them by virtue of the blood of Christ. And so to look around and see the work that God is not only doing in our midst, but is doing globally. But we don't just look down and look around, but we look back and we we survey the scope of church history. And we see the faithfulness of God in the continuing unfolding of the redemptive work of His in His church. We read church history. We read good biographies of saints of old. And these will help us to see that we are but bit players in the eternal drama of God's glory revealed for His people to enjoy. Even as if in this life we see Him only dimly through, through a window. But knowing that we are locked in with saints of old and knowing we will behold God with unveiled faces throughout eternity. And then we look forward. We lay our days, our big life decisions, our hopes, our dreams, our wishes, we lay them before Him and we entrust them to His steadfast love, His faithfulness, His righteousness, and His judgments. Some of us would say so often the steadfast love of God in any meaningful, experiential, understandable way seems distant from me. I think that is because the steadfast love of God is a vast ocean that we swim in. Yet the comforts And the securities of this life, of our hearts, of our desires, are the beach chair that we refuse to get out of and swim into the steadfast love of God. But having described this steadfast love of God in verses 5 and 6, David actually helps us to better understand how to experience it, how to grasp it in verses 7 through 9. Listen to verses 7-9. through nine. He writes, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delights. 
For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So here's what I mean by by this helping us to understand it, helping us to grasp it, helping us to apply it. That word precious there in verse uh, 7 is powerful. Because David, in saying he finds it to be precious, you see the language there that's going beyond finding it to be something that he is aware of to finding it to be something that he adores. And so precious is powerful there. It reveals to us that though though God's steadfast love is immeasurably great, it can be grasped. I just gave a few points of application, looking down, looking back, looking around, looking forward. But the bottom of the funnel of which all of these things, church history and theology and God's word and, 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 and uh, missions and evangelism, the bottom of the funnel that all these rotate down towards is the glory of Jesus Christ himself revealed to us. Jesus Christ, the steadfast love of God taking human flesh. So as David writes of taking refuge under the shadows of God's wings, This is to know that through Christ, while the storm is raging around you, or even because of you, in Christ's cross, your wickedness has been atoned for. Dear Christian, when the grief and burden of conviction for your sin weighs upon your conscience, know that we are not hauled before God as if we are repeat offenders in the courtroom of an unforgiving judge, but we are welcomed into the presence of God our Father, whose embrace we can run to. And dear Christian, when your heart feels the melancholy of the end of a beautiful summer, the departure of family that you love, the cruel, unending uh, grinding of the gears of time, days of old but faint memories, you can walk your melancholy heart to your God, carrying that strange concoction that our hearts carry of both grief and gladness, And you can walk it into the banquet room of King Jesus and feast upon the abundance of His love. A love that understands, a love that welcomes, and a love that listens. And you can drink of the river of delights that are His. Delights that when you drink of them, you will find that they taste as if they are the true and better taste than that which you knew had departed from you. The joys that we experience in this life and that we try to cling so closely to are but a small appetizer, a little tiny bite of the joys that Jesus invites us to enjoy at the feast in His presence. And then look at verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life, and your light do we see light. The terminology life and light. In Jesus, we understand both our world and our lives in ways in which you simply cannot apart from Jesus. In Christ, we come to a life that is like the woman at the well. She found living water in Him. And like those who came to Him out of darkness, they found light and they understood their lives and their world and all that God was doing in the world in ways in which they had never known before. C.S. Lewis explained it like this. This change in perspective. This manner by which God goes from one that we observe to one that we find precious. He described it in in an essay that he wrote called Meditation in a Tool Shed. In this essay, Lewis wrote him an experience of standing in a dark tool shed where it just had a little hole in one of the walls and it was sunny outside and there was this beam of sunlight that was 
coming in just that small hole and that beam of sunlight was just illuminating just a little bit there and you can kind of see like the dust flying around in that beam of sunlight and lewis wrote that that as he stood back and he observed that beam of sunlight and he observed the, the dust and everything flying around he could make observations around it but then his understanding of it changed entirely when he walked up to that little hole and bent down and looked through it and looked out and saw the source of that light and looked outside and saw the beautiful green trees, the clouds in the sky, ultimately the sun that was giving the source of all of that light. And here's the point of what Lewis was writing. And here's the way in which I think the steadfast love goes from something that we say that we are aware of to something that we find precious. And that is this. Lewis wrote that we have a propensity to look at things, to study them, to evaluate them, to observe them from a scientific perspective. But Lewis gives the example, when a teenage boy falls for a teenage girl, the world is different when she's in the room. Her voice reminds him of something that he has been trying to find his whole life. But a scientist would come along and look at that and look at, like, look at it like the one who is standing back just looking at the beam of light, not the teenage boy who's just staring at and beholding the girl, the scientist would say, well, his feelings are products of, of genetics and biology and hormones. But the boy, he's not standing back and observing. He's walked over and peered through that small hole and is looking along the light all the way to its source. Jesus Christ will be precious to you when you know that you can move from observing and evaluating Him to tasting the light and the life that He alone offers. And our hearts and our souls have only known faint echoes of this light and life throughout our experiences in life, but He invites us to the true, real thing. Now there's certainly here an invitation for those who are not Christians to come to Jesus, to, to in one sense leave the shadows. You might think this world is vivid and clear and full of color, but actually, what we who are in Christ have found is that in coming to Christ, it is as if new glasses are put on us and we see the world in an entirely different, even more beautiful way through Christ. So there's an invitation to come to Him and find light and life. But there's also an invitation for the Christian who has stepped away from that hole in the wall. The unrelenting pressures of life, the unexpected tragedies that have come upon you, something has pulled you away from seeing and beholding Christ. You've subtly become the scientist who observes and can't make sense of the trials that you've known in this life in light of a supposedly good and loving God. But if you step back over and peer into that hole once again, you will see Jesus and His steadfast love is the means by which the door to that tool shed is opened and you are brought out of the tool shed and can come enjoy His creation. You can come lay your head on the soft grass, listen to the wind rustle through the trees, and know that in Christ you are home. This is only found when we realize the steadfast love of Jesus is not a problem to be solved. It's the light by which we live. And you know what else we must note? As we consider the wicked individual in verses 1 through 4 and the person who clings to this precious steadfast love of God in verses 5 through 9, there's a lie of our day and age. A lie in the cultural moment of our time that uh, stretches all the way back through biblical times as well. And it's a lie that freedom is found in removing the shackles that would keep us 
from being true to ourselves and following our hearts. This lie says that that, that freedom is only found in being true to who you are. But the book of Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceptively wicked and dangerous. And we cannot trust them. But the wonder of the precious, steadfast love of Christ is that freedom is not found in, in, in throwing off the shackles. But freedom is found in coming to Christ and in, 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 in entrusting ourselves to Him. The shackles and the chains are our own sin, our own willingness to walk out of the darkness and into the light. Our lack of fear of God does not lead to life, but it leads to death. But true life, true freedom, true light is found in the steadfast love of God, and this is what David knows here. This steadfast love of God that he does not just know, but he knows. And this is what is preparing him as the wicked circle around him. And so it is a precious, steadfast love of God. And may it be precious to us in preparation for whoever, whatever may come upon you one day that rattles the cage of your understanding of what it means to follow Christ. But it's not just precious, it is also serious. In verses 10-12 through as we conclude. After David's heart overflows in praise to God, the only fitting response would be a prayer asking for God's steadfast love to continue to protect and nourish him. Follow along in verse 10. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. You hear David's cry there? God, I've tasted it. I know it. Continue it. Flow it. Uh, 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 Overwhelm me with it all the more. And then it's a prayer. And let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. What David shows us is that the God of Christianity is not a God who we keep at arm's distance and find value in. But He is a God who we come to and behold. And the manner by which we behold Him is a manner by which we give ourselves over to Him. A manner by which we leave the safety of that shore and allow Him to pull us into the depths of His steadfast love. But that steadfast love of God is not found in Him giving us all of our desires and all of our greatest wishes. But it's found in letting us give to us Himself. And so the manner by which David prays is a manner where he's praying, God, keep me from those who would seek to thrust me down who would seek to put that foot of arrogance upon me. But Lord, continue Your steadfast love and Your righteousness to the upright of heart. As we conclude, let me ask you one question. This this psalm is about how God keeps His people when wickedness comes to them. Did it strike you throughout this psalm that God's promise to keep His people is not grounded in the faithfulness of Him keeping His Word? Or not found in us like having to twist His arm and say, you better hold up your end of the bargain. But it's found God's promise of His keeping us is grounded in His steadfast love. 
One writer I've read said, if you were to cut the heart of God open towards us, it would bleed love. Maybe you need to run to that love of God today. The other loves that you have experienced and known in this life, they are but shadows, they are but outlines. They are small appetizers. And the love of God welcomes you to come and feast on God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Would you come to Him and know that love? Find that love in Christ. If you have questions about what it means to come to know Christ and to follow Him, I'd love to speak with you after our service. For the rest of us, let us not be a people who procrastinate. Let us not be a people who, when hardship arises, not just because life is hard, but particularly because we align ourselves with and we follow Christ, when hardship and opposition arises because of that, let us not be a people who run around shaking our hands saying, we don't know what's going on and what will happen. But saying, no, we've prepared for this. And the steadfast love of God is with us and he will protect us and he is our comfort and our peace and he is precious do you find him precious today let us look to christ who has found us precious enough that he has given his life for us and he will return again for us one day let's pray god your steadfast love is greater than life And so I pray that you would help us to not only observe it, but to treasure it. To not only consider it, but to rejoice in it. And to find that the steadfast love of God is not just a philosophical problem to be observed, but it is a truth to walk into. And to know that in walking into that steadfast love, we walk out of that dark tool shed and we find life and light and rest for our souls. Rest that is grounded in the hope of Christ and in the promises of the gospel. And in the presence of Christ, who dwells with us and who is at work within us. So Lord, would you stir this work in our hearts towards Christ, trusting in Christ, rejoicing in Christ and clinging to Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.